In your Bibles tonight, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 this evening. Luke chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. In a sermon that I've titled, The Eternal Doom of the Religious. The Eternal Doom of the Religious. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. This is a familiar story parable to many of us. Uh, your Bibles may have a heading such as mine, the rich man and the beggar, or the rich man and Lazarus, or yeah, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, this is the, the parable that we'll be looking at here this evening. As we continue our, our series on different parables of Christ, no one in scripture had more to say about hell than Jesus. The clearest and the most vivid descriptions of hell are found in the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, the rest of the New Testament, after the Gospels, it alludes to hell, but nothing is as clear and as to the point as to what Jesus has to say on the matter. Some of his teachings on hell ruffled a lot of feathers and brought a lot of controversy. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 to 23 that there will be a lot of religious people in hell. He said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus said there will be a lot of people who end up in hell who never anticipated being there because they were certain they would be in heaven based on their faithfulness to their religion. There are plenty of people who are attempting to cover up unbelief in Christ with religious practices, religious devotion, and will eventually find out that their unbelief will end up costing them everything. Jesus taught earlier in Matthew chapter 7, and in verses 13 and 14, that religion is nothing more than a highway to hell. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. During the New Testament days, the Pharisees were the most religious. So naturally, they would be the ones who took the most offense at the teachings of Jesus, especially since Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and declared that they were the ones, based on the fact that they were resting and trusting in their religion to get them to heaven, that they were the ones actually on their way to hell. As much as the Pharisees were revered, as much as they were respected by any person, Jesus said they were the worst examples to follow after. Jesus said in Luke 12, in verse number 1, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He also said in Matthew 23, verse 13, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It was comments like these that sent shockwaves throughout the community in and around Jerusalem. The Pharisees were widely accepted by every common person as the most religious, as the most God-fearing men in the community. They were the ones which 
everyone else looked up to and everyone else respected. These men were viewed as being the closest to God as a human being could, could possibly be. And Christ, when he came, completely flipped the script and called them out for their lies and revealed to everyone their hypocrisy. Most of the Pharisees believe that based on their dedication to religious practices, based on their faithfulness to observe so many of the ceremonial laws, that they deserved heaven. In fact, Jesus himself acknowledged that no one was more religious than the Pharisees, especially at keeping all the laws and all the traditions. The Pharisees were so godly, if you will, that they went and they added their own set of man-made laws on top of what God commanded so that they might be extra spiritual and extra holy. Talk about holier than thou. If there's anyone who deserved that, it was the Pharisees. But listen to how Jesus exposed their true intentions. In Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7, he says of the, of the Pharisees, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Now, phylacteries were small leather boxes in which which the, the Pharisees would, would wear usually around their, either their, their left arm or around their head, on their forehead. And they were these small leather boxes that contained a very small scroll with portions of the law written on them. When God first gave the nation of Israel his commandments, he instructed them this way in Deuteronomy 6 verse 8. He said, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. God was telling the nation of Israel, as he's giving them his commands, he's telling them that he expected each of them to be faithful, to be obedient to his word, not to take him literally and make small boxes and put small scrolls with a portion of his law on the scrolls and literally bind these things to their bodies. That's not what he was saying there in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He wanted them to be so much engrossed in his word and so obedient to his laws that it was second nature to them that they didn't have to think about it and be reminded about it every single day. But the Pharisees took things literally and were so precise in some of these minute areas of the law that they went and made little boxes, which were these phylacteries, put little tiny scrolls that had a little portion of the word on there, literally bound it to their head so there was a little box on their forehead so that they could, to the letter of the law, fulfill what God required here. That it would be as a frontlet between their eyes. God was telling them to be obedient, to be faithful, but by the time of the New Testament, it was a common practice where these Pharisees would do this. They'd wear this either on their heads or on their left arm. And what they would do as, as time went on, in order to appear even more religious, they would make these boxes larger. They would make them more ostentatious. They would make it fancier as much as they could so that to the common person who is looking at them and already respecting and revering them for how close they are to God, for the common person now seeing this massive object on their forehead and dressed so ornately, they are thinking that these Pharisees displaying, are displaying an even greater level of spirituality. 
And this is what the Pharisees lived for. This is what Jesus said. They lived for this. They lived for the praise of men and for men to think of them incredibly spiritual. And for the most part, it worked. It worked. At least until Jesus came. And until he came and exposed their hypocrisy, men were revering them and respecting them for what they believed were the truly most religious people around. Jesus, though, never once applauded them for any of their achievements or praised them for their practices. Every time Jesus addressed the matter of the religion of the Pharisees, he made it crystal clear that their righteousness was never sufficient to get them to heaven. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 20, he said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were obsessed with what others saw in them and how they wanted others to act. All the while, they neglected the bigger issues of pride, of lust, of greed, of covetousness that was brewing in their own hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 23 and verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay, tithe, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, of judgment, of mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Jesus then very plainly and publicly declared that the Pharisees were inwardly corrupt and condemned by their own words. In Matthew 12 and verses 33 to 37, he says, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. When Jesus got to the end of his parable of the unjust steward, what we looked at last week, this is the first 13 verses here in Luke chapter 16. When he got to the end of this parable, some Pharisees heard what Jesus had been saying to his disciples about making idols of money. Notice what we read here in Luke 16 and verse number 14. Remember, the audience of the unjust steward parable was primarily the disciples, at least until the end. Verse 14 says, And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. They were close enough to hear some of these things. Jesus responded to the Pharisees with yet another very forceful condemnation of their religion. He would call them out for all their outward demonstrations of devotion to God, no matter how serious they were, no matter how diligent they were, no matter how focused they were to the law. The truth of their religion was that it was all superficial. It didn't matter how impressed everyone else was with the religion of the Pharisees. God was not impressed and God would show them no favor. The best works they could ever do, no matter how good they looked in the eyes of the people, were nothing more than filthy rags in the eyes of God. And this is what the prophet Isaiah declared in Isaiah 64 and verse number 6. He said, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The Pharisees thought that because of their position as Pharisees, because of their 
observance of the laws and traditions that they were set, that they were destined for heaven because of all their quote-unquote good works. But Jesus came and gave them a reality check. Notice what he said to them in verse number 15. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Jesus knocked the Pharisees off their high horse and shattered this erroneous view they held of themselves. Jesus, really, he did them the best favor anyone could ever do because he gave them an opportunity to change their lives and truly turn to God in faith before it was too late. So this brings us to our parable this evening. And let me start by first setting the context. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus sums up everything that he has preached to the Pharisees. He sums up the law. He sums up the gospel. He sums up true righteousness. Thank you. By making, by making three quick points. First, the old covenant is giving way to the new covenant. Look at what it says in verse number 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. So the old covenant, he says, is giving way to the new covenant. God knew that no one would ever be able to live up to his standard of perfection, and that is why Christ came. All the warnings and all the consequences of the law were being answered by the promises of the gospel and the substitutionary atonement that was going to be offered through Jesus Christ. So the law left every single person hopeless, left every single person condemned, but the Pharisees were foolishly thinking that their own man-made righteousness was going to be sufficient. The why is found in Jesus' second point in verse number 17. So first, the old covenant is giving way to the new covenant, and the second quick point that he mentions is that the law demands perfection. The law demands perfection. Look at verse number 17. <clears throat> he says, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. What he's saying is that the law didn't let up. The law doesn't get any easier with more time that passes. And to make it even more difficult, James tells us that even if we were successful in perfectly upholding 99.9% .9 of all of the law and are just guilty in the smallest little part, it says we're guilty of everything. The law demands perfection. And third, he says the Pharisees' interpretation of the law was designed to make things easier. The Pharisees' interpretation of the law was designed to make things easier. For example, the Pharisees taught that men were permitted to divorce their wives for nearly any reason. But notice what Jesus said in verse number 18. He said, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. With all their little minute obsessions, the Pharisees hadn't grasped how demanding and really how inflexible God's law really was. 
They thought that they could be selective, that they could pick and choose with God's law and that they would be okay, that they'd still be set for heaven. But God's law covers not just the things that we do, but also everything that we think. It was completely delusional for the Pharisees to think that they were going to earn God's favor while clearly and openly violating God's law. And it is from that point, that point where they could violate God's law and still be okay, that Jesus launches into our parable here this evening where he highlights the horrors of hell and the eternal regret of all the well-to-do and self-righteous people whose wealth or religion convinced them that they were bound for heaven. I will admit, this is probably one of the saddest parables that you'll ever read, but certainly a lesson that we need to take seriously and a lesson that we need taught more of today. So with this very lengthy introduction, Follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke chapter 16 and verses 19 to 31. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Even though this parable has to deal with the misery of the man in hell, Jesus has an immensely gracious purpose in telling this parable to the Pharisees. He was urging the Pharisees to repent and showing them their current religion was leading them straight to hell. Now, we, we've seen the context of the parable, which I don't think we pay enough attention to when we consider this parable. We usually just jump right into it and, and rarely consider that he's talking to the Pharisees and in what specifically he's talking to the Pharisees about. But we've looked at the context that he's, that he's speaking to them about certain things that have passed and speaking to them about the absurdity of trusting in their own religion to get, it, to get them to heaven. But notice secondly, notice secondly, our need for the fear of God. Our need for the fear of God. I think it's clear that Jesus wasn't telling this parable for anyone's amusement. This is a, a very solemn word of warning for those who are trusting in their wealth, for those who are trusting in religion or anything else other than Christ for salvation. As we've seen with all of Christ's parables, there tends to be a little bit of shock in them. 
Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He usually tells it as it is, and oftentimes it isn't pretty. Some people may be offended by such teachings of hell today, but the truth is not judged by how it makes people feel. Hell is such a a hot-button topic today that we avoid talking about it as often as we should. Hell is almost an embarrassment to Christians who want Christianity to fit into this modern mold of universal goodwill and tolerance. The message of hell is an inconvenience to those who want every single sermon to be cheerful and uplifting. The message of hell is annoying to those who want religion to have people be feeling good about who they are and about how they're living without having to change anything about themselves. The message of hell is an offense to those who think that they can maintain their own perfect religion and don't care about righteousness and have no fear of God whatsoever. So what, what we've seen happen is people shy away from speaking of hell that even many gospel tracks, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but many gospel tracks dance around the realities of hell and, and the horrors of what hell is going to be like as maybe not to scare people away or not to introduce the gospel that way. We, we figure that we've done enough if we tell people of a God who is a God of love and has sent them a savior. But when we ignore sin and when we ignore the reality of hell, we're essentially elevating human reason above God. Over and over again, God's word clearly states that God will punish the wicked with, he says, everlasting punishment or everlasting fire or the place, he says, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Hell is consistently described over and over again. And it's also described as as a place of everlasting torment. So it's mentioned, it's described, and it's described as a horrible place. The punishment of the wicked is not a fixed period of time. It is everlasting, the Bible says. And the parable that we have here in Luke chapter 16, it paints for us a very clear picture of how horrific and how relentless hell truly is. It should trouble us and disturb us as we read this. It is intended to be disturbing. It's horrific and relentless as we read about the realities of hell. It isn't intended for us to to read it and not be affected by it at all. Even if you're saved, and even if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that hell is not what is awaiting you after this life is over, it is our duty to believe what Jesus has taught about hell and to understand what the eternal punishment is awaiting all those who reject Christ as Lord. I don't talk about hell because it brings me any sort of enjoyment. I don't believe that Christ had any joy as he spoke about hell, as he talked this parable and offered countless other teachings on the reality of sinners being condemned to hell. The reality of hell should lead us as believers to have urgency in our own personal witnessing. And I fear that we've done more of, what we've done more of though is gone in the opposite direction. Reducing hell to a meaningless swear word that is used to express anger instead of what it really is in the Bible. We hear people casually throw around the insult to people they don't like. Well, they'll say, you can just go to hell. And people use the word who have no idea of its reality. While those who know often sit back in silence, and this is exactly how Satan wants it to be. Because then he's able to lead people to hell who never considered it a reality or were never concerned that it would be that bad. And the point of this parable is to sound the alarm about the reality of hell, about the fierceness of hell, about the horrors of hell, and the very real threat that it poses to those who live in unbelief and sin and are trusting in their religion to get them to heaven. 
So we've seen the context. We've seen the need for our fear of God. But third, let's take a look at those that are involved in this parable. Those that are involved. Some people insist that this isn't a parable at all. Some people say that because Jesus never, I shouldn't say never, but in most cases, never mentions the names of people in a parable. And because we actually have a name, many suggest, well, that's not a parable. We're usually told things like a certain man or a certain rich man. Uh, and then we have Lazarus that's mentioned here in this parable. We even have Abraham, an Old Testament saint, playing a factor in and. Based on those facts, some believe that this isn't a parable, but it's an actual true story. As we take a further look at this passage, I think it'll become clear that it is indeed a parable. And there is a reason why specific names were mentioned. So let me point out several reasons why it is indeed a parable. I think at times we can get carried away with trying to pull more out of Scripture than what is truly there. And we'll add extra meaning to things that were never intended to have any extra meaning. And this parable has one purpose, and it is to warn all those who will hear that hell will be full of people who never expected to be there. In this parable, Jesus gives us a good picture of what it is like to be in hell. We're clearly told that hell will be a place of endless and agonizing pain. Hell is a place of regret. It is a place of relentless torment. Hell is a place with no escape. It is a place that offers no rest. There will not be even a single moment of relief for those that are in hell. There will not be even a single glimmer of relief from the endless pain. Hell is a horrific, heartbreaking, miserable damnation and place of eternal suffering. But this parable is more than just a warning about hell. It also serves to uncover the heresy of the false religion of those who believe that heaven can be earned through self-righteousness. So the first person that we're introduced to is the rich man in verse number 19. We never get his name. This is all we're told. Verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. This man lived in the lap of luxury every single day. Based on the religion the Pharisees taught, the religion that was believed by most of the Jews, this rich man was just the kind of person believed to be accepted into heaven based on how he lived, based on his appearance, based on his material wealth. Most of those who were listening to Jesus would have immediately deduced that this man was so incredibly wealthy that he fared sumptuously every day and was prominent because God had shown favor and had blessed him and all that was awaiting him after this life was even greater joys in heaven because of how much God had blessed him here on earth. And then we're introduced to Lazarus in verses 20 and 21. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, quite the contrast here within these men. One was filthy rich and had absolutely everything this world could ever offer, while the other was just filthy. He was dirt poor, destitute, unable to even care for himself. Jesus says he's laid at the gate of that rich man, which the language implies that he was basically just dropped off here in front of the gate of this rich man, which 
whoever did this, whoever left him here, probably thought that if anyone is going to be charitable to this man, if anyone can, it's going to be this rich man at whose gate he is being dropped off at. Lazarus was in such poor condition, basically on the verge of death, the Bible describes, that dogs were about to consume him as if he was roadkill. The Pharisees, looking at the contrast between these two men, one incredibly wealthy, fared sumptuously every day, everything about his life demonstrated immense power, immense wealth, while the other one, completely destitute, nothing to his name, dirt poor, he looked like death. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, they're looking at two polar opposites, and between the two of these, in their minds, Lazarus was the one who was deemed worthy of hell. He's basically there. He's the one who's probably fit for that. And based on the rich man's state and his condition, this is the one that God has already shown favor to. It's evident that he's going to be in heaven based on all of these, all these outward observances. The shock of the parable came when Jesus completely reversed the expected outcome of the two men. Notice what happens in verses 22 and 23. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Both men die. One is received into a place of honor. The other is received into a place of horror. The beggar who dreamed of feeding himself from crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man, the one who was deemed probably worthy of hell in the eyes of the Pharisees is the one that is received into the place of honor. The rich man who had every luxury known to man is, in the eyes of the Pharisees, the one they believed was most worthy of heaven is the one received into the place of horror, hell. He had the best this life could ever offer, but he would be eternally humiliated, eternally abandoned, eternally hopeless, begging for a drop of water to cool his tongue for even a single moment. There is so much irony in this role reversal. The reason we're given the name of the poor man is because the name Lazarus literally means the one whom the Lord has helped. Jesus lifted him out of the depths of despair here on earth. He showed him divine grace and favor. The rich man isn't given a name because he's the one who's not important. In hell, he's been stripped of all the wealth, of all the prominence that he had on earth, including his name. We don't need to know his name. While well, the poor beggar has been given all the blessings and all the privileges of God's eternal comfort. And notice fourth, we've seen the individuals. Notice fourth, the plea of the rich man and the response of Abraham. The plea of the rich man and the response of Abraham. Look at verses 24 to 26. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. 
And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. The plea of the rich man and the response of Abraham. The man cries out from hell, and he begs for a drop of water to cool his tongue for a single moment. Why is he in hell to begin with? There's no mention of any specific sin. He is most likely a religious man. He was a prominent man in society. It is clear, though, that he was probably selfish, uncaring, oblivious to the needs of those around him who were suffering as Lazarus was left outside of his gate completely uncared for. But we see no mention of him abusing Lazarus or even treating him poorly, just neglecting. Jesus purposely doesn't mention that the rich man was some heinous and cruel man as if hell is only reserved for those that are monstrously wicked. That's not the point Jesus is making here. And notice also that when the rich man is in hell, he asks for a drop of water not to be released from hell, not for a second chance, not for God's decision to send him there to be reconsidered. You see, if he knew he didn't deserve it, he would have cried out and said, there's been a mistake. I don't deserve to be here. But what he asks for is for a drop of water to cool his tongue. All the pretense has been stripped away. And the understanding is that this man is fully aware of his guilt and that he is in hell because this is indeed everything that he deserves. He accepts that. And that is why he asks for just a moment of relief from the pain and the agony and the torment. And ironically, he asks that Lazarus be the one to offer him relief, the one person he never offered any sort of relief to when they were both alive. But relief would never come. As he then accepts that there is no hope for himself, he then shifts his focus back to earth, to his five brothers who are still alive and are on the same track that he's on. Look at verses 27 and 28. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, For I have five brethren, and he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Many of the Pharisees believed that they were headed to heaven because of their genealogical connection to Abraham. This rich man now knows that it makes absolutely no difference who your parents are, who your grandparents are, who your ancestors were, because no genealogical connection is ever getting anyone into heaven. God doesn't have grandchildren or great-grandchildren. He has children that he has adopted into his family through their personal faith in his only begotten son. God doesn't save you because your mom or your dad was saved. God doesn't save you because your grandparents were saved. God saves you when you believe on Jesus Christ as your personal savior. When this rich man finally realized that his religion was all wrong, it was too late. But he requests that Lazarus be sent back from the dead to witness to his five brothers who are still alive and are on the same track that he's on. While on earth, this rich man was used to getting everything that he asked for. But now it was completely different because he was not in a position of power and authority. The response of Abraham is clear and concise. Look at what he says in verse number 29. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham says that his five brothers already have everything they need to avoid the eternal suffering of hell that he's currently experiencing. What Abraham was saying is that the reason these five brothers are unregenerate 
unbelieving reprobates in danger of hell was not because God's word or the prophets of old have failed them in some way. There is no better way to give truth to the unbelieving than through the teaching and the preaching of God's word. There is no new style of witnessing and ministry that is superior to overcome the unbelief of man. All the power rests in the word of God. It always has and it always will. In 1 Peter 1 verse 23 it states, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. The rich man was in hell forever, not because he lacked information, but because he ignored the message that he received from the word of God and from the prophets of old. The plea of this rich man was the same plea that Jesus constantly heard from the Pharisees. They all wanted a sign from God. They all wanted a sign from Jesus to prove that he really is indeed the son of God. And even after numerous miracles where Jesus healed the sick, where he cast out demons, where he fed the hungry, we're told in Matthew 12 and verse number 38, then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Seriously? What have you been watching? What have you been looking at? When have you tried to feed 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish? When have you tried to walk on water? When have you tried to heal those that were sick? When have you tried to raise the dead? And any of it worked successfully. What other sign could you seriously need to see in order to believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God? And notice how Jesus responded in Matthew 12, verses 39 to 40. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth see despite all the signs and all the many miracles which were very clear evidence that he was indeed who he claimed to be Jesus said to the Pharisees who asked for more you want a sign? I'll give you the greatest sign in the entire world. I'll give you my resurrection. How about that? You're going to see me die upon the cross. You're going to see me be buried in a tomb. And three days later, I'm going to walk right out of that grave. How's that for a sign? That should be sufficient, right? There is no greater sign than that. Now that should definitely be enough for them to be convinced, right? Well... That passage goes on, or notice what it says right here, actually. Luke 16, verses 30 and 31. The rich man responds, he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. If we see a resurrection, that'll be enough, he says. The response in verse 31 is, and he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. This is the main point of the parable. It's not just to warn about the reality of hell and its horrors, but that salvation is only possible through the message of God's word. As great as miracles are, miracles have no power to convince those who reject Christ to believe in the message of God's word. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
It's not the miracles. It's not the works. It's the message of the gospel. How did the Pharisees respond when Christ rose from the grave after being dead and buried three days? They conspired with the Roman guards to cover up the truth of Christ's resurrection. They claimed to want a sign. Christ told them, I'll give you a sign, the greatest sign, and they still rejected him. It doesn't matter how incredible a miracle may be, if a person refused to accept the teachings of the gospel, it'll never convince them to trust in Christ. And that's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees who are the audience of this parable, the ones who are trusting in their own riches, the ones who are trusting in their own religion to get them to heaven. He says here, your signs and everything else that you're asking for isn't going to be enough. You have everything you need in the word of God and in the prophets of old and the message that they brought. The sign will never be enough. You'll be eternally condemned if you're resting in a sign. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The truth of God's word is the only message with the power to bring salvation to sinful souls. Far too many are rejecting the truth of God's word and believing in miracles, believing in religion, believing in an experience only to one day realize that whatever faith they had in all those things was not a saving faith. Christ says of these folks that they will one day be judged by the very word they rejected. I shared these words earlier. Oh, no, I'm sorry, this is another passage. John 12, 46 to 48. Jesus says, I am come and light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. There will be many religious people in hell. And they will be there, not because they didn't deserve it, but because they trusted in their own self-righteous works rather than the all-sufficient finished work of Christ. Hell is going to be filled, but may we do everything to make sure that no one gets there without us pleading for them to first come to the Savior. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the message that you gave many years ago, a message that still rings true to us today with regards to what we need to understand about the realities of hell and, Lord, in the realities of placing our faith not in religion, not in a practice, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we, even as believers today, understand this truth of hell, I ask, Lord, that you would help us to have urgency within us and within our own personal evangelism to make sure that, Lord, we're not skirting the issue and shying away from telling people about the real dangers that await them. Lord, may we be tactful in doing this. May we approach the topic with meekness and fear. But Lord, may we present the whole truth, the whole message of the gospel, so that people can truly know and understand what awaits them should they reject Jesus Christ and his finished work. Use us as your tools and as your instruments of grace and truth, bringing your message to the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.